0: Sermon text for today comes from Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Amen. You can have a seat. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out a copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Technically, uh, I was going to preach through verse 15 here. This is one narrative that that Luke lays out for us that, you know, ends up uh, covering Paul's journeys in Thessalonica and in a place called Berea, but there's a lot here in the first nine verses that I want to cover, and so... Uh, you know, we're going to focus primarily on these first nine verses, but there's a lot that we say this morning that will also apply to the rest of this passage as well. So I would encourage you to read verses 10 through 15 sometime later today and just marvel at how the Bereans uh, examine the scriptures daily. Now, there's a phrase... There's a phrase that's mentioned in this passage, I hope you noticed it, where there's an accusation that comes against the Christian community, the early church, and it's that these men have turned the world upside down. And we're going to be talking about the accusation here in a minute, but I wanted to open and Ask you if you had to name some people throughout the history of the world who who have turned the world upside down, whose actions or or decisions or inventions have just changed the world as we know it throughout the history of the world. So who would you name if you had to name some people who you consider to have turned the world upside down? I'll go ahead and take one off the table. We're in charge, Jesus. Jesus, yes, yeah, very good guys, good job, Jesus, he did turn the world upside down, we're going to be talking all about that, what about some other people, okay, throughout the history of the world, folks that have turned the world upside down, you know, maybe, maybe you could think of like Gutenberg, you know, Gutenberg, he turned the world upside down with the printing press, it it changed everything, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, the techn- uh, uh, technological revolution. I mean, they, you know, changed the world. Up so that I can't even get through a week without using Steve Jobs' products, you know, just as an example of that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I know that folks in my home state this morning, this morning, folks in my home state... Coach Mark Stoops—he has turned the world upside down. As Kentucky stands as as uh, <laughs> undefeated this morning, I had—I'm sorry, I had to—and I'm going to be obnoxious until we lose. Okay, which may happen this this coming Saturday, but it may not because it's another equally strong and undefeated team. Maybe you've heard of them. Georgia, they're okay, you know, uh, but Kentucky, the powerhouse, they're coming. Uh, they're coming for Georgia. Uh, but in Kentucky, yeah, Mark Stoops, he has turned our world upside down. As, you know, we have a better record than Alabama now. So sorry, guys. Like I don't know how that happened. It's Mark Stoops. The world has been turned upside down. Now, a question, though, out of this. That's, that's just silly. Um, can we? Can we really be... The types of people who help change the world or is that just reserved for the u- uber talented and and the super wealthy and, and the elites in the world can can ordinary people really and truly change the world because if I ask you to name people who have turned the world upside down most of the people that you're going to name are not just ordinary guys where we would say wait who's that again no we've all heard of these people is it possible We're going to see today that our ordinary mission of making disciples who love God and others is a world-changing mission. It changes the world. It turns the world upside down. I have to ask, because I, I don't know that I have a good answer to this. Do we understand what we have been invited into? Do we understand? We understand we've been invited into something, right? To join the Lord, on his mission to bring people to saving faith in Jesus. We understand that we are now on mission with God to to see the world become what it was always meant to be. We, We understand that, but do we understand how glorious it is? Do we understand how grand, important, and significant this ordinary mission of telling other people about Jesus really is? You see, through our faithful yet ordinary proclamation of the gospel we turn the world upside down for good our passage this morning highlights how the world is turned upside down in two ways how the gospel is shared and then how the gospel is received We're going to learn some helpful methods in presenting the good news to others, and then we're going to learn why Jesus and his gospel are just so repulsive to some people in our world and how we are even prone to reject the Jesus that we proclaim to love. I want to show you two things this morning from Acts 17. Number one, how some people come to faith in Jesus, so how how it happens if if this is something that changes the world people come into faith in jesus us proclaiming the the kingdom of god through jesus you know um how, how does this happen how do people come to faith and then second why do some people not get in on it why why do some people reject the good news of jesus so how how do some people get in how do other people or why do other people reject jesus let's let's go one by one so first how people come to faith in Jesus. We, we see this in the first four verses of Acts 17. So uh, when we start here, we see that Paul and Silas are on the move... They had been in Philippi. Remember, they were in jail, and, and they were released from jail, and now they are they are departing. They visited with Lydia, who had been converted through their ministry, and now they are they are now on their way to other places. And, and Paul and Silas, they passed through these two towns, which were significant towns, but uh, they were nothing compared to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a very important, uh, a very large uh, port city in uh, Macedonia. It was the capital of Macedonia. Uh, it was a really important Greek city, and even though the Romans had authority, in control. Thessalonica functioned as a Greek city. It was a free city. Um, it, had, it had served important roles in uh, you know, a war some hundred years before. It was a really important place. And this was a place where a lot of Jews were. If you remember back in Philippi, uh, uh, Paul and Silas, they could not find a synagogue. And if you cannot find a synagogue in a place, that means that there are no Jews in that area. All you need, and Miss Jenny helped me out with this, she, she confirmed this, all you need is what, ten, 10 men? Ten men to start a synagogue. And, and if they don't have even one synagogue that just shows you how low the Jewish population was in Philippi but here we learn very quickly that he finds a synagogue in Thessalonica so it's a very different city so Paul we see here he follows his custom and we've seen it over and over again and I hope you notice this when he goes into a new place he looks for a synagogue and he begins to share the gospel that way synagogue outreach now This is true even though we saw back in uh, uh, earlier parts of this, this new section in Acts that Paul seems to have shifted his focus away from the Jews and toward the Gentiles. Away from the Jews and toward the Gentiles. His primary focus now is on reaching the Gentiles. And yet here he comes into Thessalonica, a Greek Gentile city, and he looks for A synagogue, And and the point here is that he is not going to miss an opportunity to share the gospel in such a natural way. Evangelism to the Jews was one of the easiest things for Paul because there's already so many shared theological presuppositions between Jews and Christians. Paul didn't have to explain that God's the creator of the universe. Paul didn't have to explain that, you know, worshiping idols is foolish. He didn't have to start there. They had a lot of common ground. Um, he, he would begin with Abraham. He would show how the promises that were made to Abraham found, find their fulfillment in Jesus. And he would literally just take their own scriptures and be like, hey, I don't have a Bible this morning. Y'all got one? Okay, cool. And he would just use their Bible and he would walk them through it and show them how all of this is pointing toward and is, it finds fulfillment in Jesus. And he did this in, in the synagogue. Um, it would be like if the Lord had particularly gifted you to share the gospel with skeptical people. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, as you think about sharing the gospel, you love talking to people who just have all these questions and have all these doubts, and you just love engaging with them. Well, that may be something that you feel is like a part of your mission. Like, hey, I'm, if, I'm going to be intentionally pursuing conversations with people in town that reject the church, that reject Christianity, that reject Jesus because I'm good at talking with them. Well, you wouldn't pass on an opportunity to talk to someone who is very familiar with the Bible, though. Someone who's not a believer but has a lot of respect for the church or a lot of respect for the Bible itself. You wouldn't pass on an opportunity. And this is what we see Paul doing here. He's taking advantage of this larger Jewish population, and he spends three Sabbaths visiting the same synagogue to share The gospel. Now we learn from uh, the the letters First and Second Thessalonians, which were letters written by Paul to the church in this city. We learn that he spent a significant amount of time there. So at some point, uh, whether it was now or later, most likely now, when it says three Sabbaths, that means he at least stayed there three weeks. But he could have stayed there for much longer. And he's just focusing on these three individual times he was, you know, with the synagogue on. The Sabbath. Regardless, he at least spent three weeks here. And here's what we see him doing. We see that people come to faith in Jesus through two things. First, our evangelistic method. Our method. Our evangelistic method. How we speak about Jesus. Now notice, notice here what, what he's doing. So in verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures but he keeps going explaining and proving that it was necessary for the christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this jesus whom i proclaim to you is the christ so what is he doing here he's in the synagogue he opens the scriptures and he's he's reasoning with them He's trying to show them these truths. And he's like, I know this is your concept now, but, but here, here's, here's how this is fulfilled in Jesus. They, he would explain the scriptures to them. He, he proved things that they currently didn't believe. And then he just simply proclaimed the scriptures. And we learn a lot about evangelism from Paul here. Notice what he's not doing. If he is taking the time to reason, if he's explaining if he's proving, if he's proclaiming. That's why it took three Sabbaths. You can't do that stuff in just a short amount of time. But notice what he's not doing. If he's doing those things, he's not coercing them. He's he's not pressuring them. No no one comes to faith in Jesus by being pressured. And if they do, it will not be a healthy spiritual walk. He's not pressuring them. He's not emotionally manipulating them. He's, he's not even guilting them in any way. I mean, Paul is slowly, carefully, and faithfully showing the Jews what their own scriptures had to say about Jesus. And can't you just see him week after week after week? Do you see this? Do you see this? And just letting, letting them sit there and examine for themselves. Well, maybe. May, maybe. I, I see that a little bit. Okay so you're saying that jesus is the promised one in the same way that we find this prophecy from david or isaiah or abraham okay maybe no 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 Now listen listen more and he just continues to press in gently but but with conviction you know one of the best things that we can do when we're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever is what we see paul doing right here he's showing them the gospel's reasonableness that's what he's doing right He's, he's walking them through their own scriptures, and he's saying, do you see how this makes sense? Do you see how this makes sense? What, what, what's an alternative, okay? This is who Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. This is what your scriptures say about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would come to do. Doesn't it make sense? That's one of the best things that we can do in in evangelism is help people see this isn't just some crazy religious cult, you know, trying to get you to to join up and give your money and, you know, promise you all of these things that we have no idea whether or not can be true or not. No, it's reasonable. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's still faith in the sense that there are things that we cannot comprehend and cannot understand, but at the end of the day, it is a reasonable faith. And so one of the best things we can do in evangelism is what Paul's doing here, reason with people explain to them, show them, and if they respect the Bible especially, you'll have great success just opening the Bible. Now look, look at who Jesus is and what he did. Doesn't this make sense? Now, his evangelistic method reflects a formula that, that I've shared with you before here when we've talked about building a gospel culture. when We've talked about building a culture in the church that reflects the gospel of Jesus. We've talked about doing that with, with, with one formula. Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. We need the gospel, we need a safe environment, and we need time in order to continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus in a safe place, or, or you know, in a place that reflects the gospel. Okay. Um, this applies to evangelism, too. And you can actually see Paul putting this to work in practice in uh, Thessalonica the gospel was his subject, right? He, he comes down here and we see that what he was proving to them is that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he connects the dots and he says, and Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So the gospel is his message. But second, Paul created a safe environment for people to ask questions, seek clarification, and, and consider openly and honestly what he was saying through his careful reasoning through his explanation through his proclamation of the gospel he's not saying to them i'm here to tell you the truth here's the truth now believe or you go to hell okay you don't believe you well i guess you're going to hell then bad choice just believe and you know putting pressure on people no that's not what we see we see the gospel, and then we see safety. He's, he's reasoning with them. He's taking his time. He's saying, this is a place where you can ask questions. There are no dumb questions here. they are like, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying about Jesus being the Messiah, but, I mean, we've had other people who have had similar traits who have come along and who have professed to be, you know, Messiahs. We've seen that happen over the last hundred years or so in our people. How do we know that Jesus isn't one of those? It was a place where they could ask questions like that. It was a safe place. And finally, you see that Paul spent significant time with them. The fact that he spent three Sabbaths reasoning with them from the scriptures means he had a stopping point. You know, they would finish the first day and he would be like, okay, here's here's the gospel. It doesn't take that long to explain. If you ever share the gospel with someone, it doesn't take that long. You know, you you get to it pretty quickly. But when you're reasoning with people and you're being careful to show them who Jesus is and what he has done in a gentle way, you need time. And people need time to have their minds changed. The more pressure you put on someone, the less likely it is that they're going to come to faith. The more time you give them, the more likely you are to be gentle in the conversation, and the more likely they are to actually hear you and maybe even respond in faith. So like Paul, if we want to see people in our lives come to faith in Jesus, we need to have a combination of conviction, grace, and patience in our evangelism. You may feel like, you know, you're trying to be intentional about sharing the gospel with others, but no one's coming to faith in your life. You're not seeing any results. Be patient. Be patient with others. Be patient with yourself and wait on the Lord. He will move through his spirit. He will bring people to faith. Continue sharing the gospel and doing it in a safe environment and be patient as you do it. Um, so, that's, so that's his method. One more thing we see here is his message. Uh, people come to faith by hearing the gospel as you're sharing the gospel with people make sure you're sharing the gospel like (laughs) you know it's not enough just to talk about morality or talk about you know different principles in the bible when you want someone to come to saving faith in jesus you have to tell them about jesus that's what paul's doing here there were tons of things he could have talked about and instead he he breaks down all of the scriptures almost like an emmaus road type experience where he goes from genesis all the way to malachi through the whole scriptures and he shows them jesus is the messiah and this messiah in order to save you from your sins he had to die you notice the language here in order for people to come to saving faith in jesus they have to become convinced that jesus died for them and he had to because they are sinners and the curse of sin is is death and so the only way for For sinners to be forgiven of sin is for someone to take their place. And that's the gospel, that Jesus has taken our place. And this is what Paul was proclaiming to them. Jesus has taken your place. He is the one who has died. He had to die. In order for you to be saved and reconciled to God, he had to die. It wasn't an option. And then he had to rise from the dead so that his death was unlike any other sinners. Because he himself fulfilled perfectly the righteousness of god and so when he dies he's not dying for his own sins he's dying for yours it was necessary for the christ to die and jesus himself is the messiah it's through this message that people come to faith so when you share the gospel with people make sure you're sharing the gospel you're focusing on who jesus is not you know your own church experiences or you know Uh, particular worship styles or you know a particular theological uh, camp that you seem to find yourself in no we want to focus on Jesus who he is and what he has done that's how people come to faith and that's how the world is turned upside down one last thing we see here is that people come to faith by receiving the gospel there's something to do People have to not only hear about God's grace, they have to receive it, and they receive it through faith. We see that here, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. How do people come to faith? They come to faith through a gracious, truthful, and patient evangelistic method, where we are sharing the truth of the gospel in a safe environment, and we're giving people time to respond. All right, but two, um, how do people come to faith? Second, why do some people reject Jesus? And I don't, I don't even really mean this theologically. I mean, we see a strong, strong reaction to the gospel here. And it really causes me to ask, like, what gives? Like, why? You know, we have these people who are just, you know, considering Paul's arguments, and they're like, you know, that makes sense to me. I'm going to believe that. And then other people sitting in the same place with a guy who is not just going off the rails, who is carefully reasoning as a philosopher would, as any rabbi would, any, any teacher in the day, nothing crazy happening. And the response that he got from some of the Jews that were there was, in a word, crazy. F- follow with me in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Um, yeah, not everyone responded so favorably to Paul and his message. We have these Jewish, most likely religious leaders, that incite this mob— they, they literally go out into the streets, and they, they find these people who, uh, just in my reading, it was most, mostly people who were just idle, people who were not working, who were just on the streets, just trying to survive, and, and they, they rally them together, and they get them all fired up, and they literally create a mob and set the city in an uproar. So they're, they're, they're going to accuse Paul and Silas of trying to turn the world upside down, trying to, you know, flip this city on its head. And it's like, no, that's what you guys are doing. You're tearing this place apart. And so the, the city is in an uproar. And this, this man named Jason, who was evidently a, a local Christian who was uh, playing host to Paul and Silas, they come to his house and, uh, you know, Silas or Jason had either hid Paul and Silas or at this point he had already helped them make their escape because they're nowhere to be found, and then the mob drags Jason and some other Christians out. And this violent response in verses 5 and 6 here is in stark opposition of the faith that we see in verse 4. Why such a violent response? Well, um, they end up giving us two accusations here that that let us in on what it is that causes some people to reject the gospel. Paul has been teaching two things, and they had two troubling implications for some of the Jews and some of the Greeks. It was teaching that the gospel presents a new kingdom and a new king. And these new realities threatened the authority and autonomy of the Jewish religious leaders, and some of the Greeks as well. It threatened them. That's why Luke tells us, but the Jews were jealous these, these realities caused these, these men to go and they, I don't know what they were going to do to Paul and Silas had they gotten them. They had this mob, they were at least trying to kick them out of the city and they end up getting their way on that. But this is how Jesus turns the world upside down. Through his incarnation, Jesus has come and he has interrupted our way of life. And when you truly realize what Paul is saying here, when you truly understand who Jesus is, that he really is a king, that he really has come to establish a new way of life, you are confronted with the way you're living your life. And then you are confronted with this reality, in order for me to get in on who Jesus is, I have to submit fully to him. If he really is a king, if he really has a new kingdom that I'm going to be a part of, I really have to submit what I think is best for my life to what he says is best for my life. So, two things we draw from this. Some people reject Jesus because he demands a new way of life that replaces the old way of life for us. You see, Paul talked about a new kingdom. And because he did, he was accused of subversion or, or you know, possibly even the beginning stages of an insurrection Paul and Silas and the rest of the Christians they're, they're charged here with literally causing trouble or you know this, this language that we find here in the ESV that they have turned the world upside down this was a charge of revolutionary activity you see the intention of this charge is to help the governing authorities see danger in Paul and Silas namely that they are trying to overthrow the status quo that their message and their missionary activity was going to cause social upheaval. And so much like tyrannical revolutionaries in the past, this mob accused Paul and Silas of trying to shake things up and introduce a new social order, which would have been a major threat to this still young free city of Thessalonica. A threat. And that's, that's what they're trying to do with this accusation. Now, the first thing we need to see here is that the accusation is false. False. That's not what Paul and Silas are doing. Paul and Silas are not trying to create a new social order in the city of Thessalonica. They are not trying to overthrow the Roman government and its ways. They're not trying to do any of that. They're not on an indoctrination mission. They literally go into synagogues and if people respond faithfully to the gospel, then great. And if they don't, we'll move on. They're not there to to, you know, cause an uproar. There was no force, there were no threats. You remember how zealous Paul was but the once zealous Paul, he had evidently been really mellowed out by the grace of God so this was not a political movement. God's kingdom had come and Jesus really is the supreme lord of all but Paul wasn't seeking to upend the Romans. Um, So it's false. But that accusation is also true. They really had started to turn the world upside down. It was true. Not in the sense that they intended it But the kingdom of God really does subvert and reverse the ways of this world. It really does. It really does change things. It really does flip the world on its head. You know, maybe a more accurate description would be that they didn't turn the world upside down, but through Jesus, they were turning the world right side up. Caesars with godlike authority and a world full of idols that's a world that's upside down the world that we're in with conflict and brokenness and sin at every turn that is the world upside down and when Jesus ushered in a new kingdom he says this is the way it's going to be in the future 10 billion years from now this is the way that it's going to be he is inverting the ways of the world conflict turns to peace We are expected to be gracious with each other and not harsh. We are called to love and not hate. So in a sense, it is true that proclaimers of this kingdom, new citizens of the world as it will be, are turning the world upside down. But this is true because new life is imparted when we share the gospel and people believe. When you share the gospel with someone and they believe, they receive new life. This is true because a new people is being established. And disciples of Jesus all over the world and right here in Tupelo, Mississippi, are spreading. And God's glory is filling the earth. And through that work, the world is turned upside down. So it's true. We are not revolutionaries seeking to overthrow the government and put in a a Christian president so that things can be set right. We're not revolutionaries. But we are reflections of the person of Jesus. So our little worlds should be somewhat better because we are there. You see, we've been been called to turn the world upside down by living out the implications of the gospel. As we make disciples who love God and others, we are slowly but surely joining in the mission of God to turn the world right side up. And this happens on a large scale as we share the gospel and see people receive new life, but it happens on a small scale too, an infinite number of smaller scales where at your job, through your kindness, through your diligence, through your faithfulness, through your love of other people, through, through the way that you sacrifice, you show people the world as it should be. In those small ways, you are turning the world right side up in the power of Jesus at home with your friends and your relationships. So some people reject Jesus because he demands a new way of life that replaces the old. Last thing, some people reject Jesus because he demands their ultimate allegiance. Jesus does. You see, because Paul talked about a new king, he was actually accused of treason here. So I want you to follow with me these accusations that come, starting in verse 6. So they get Jason, they get the other brothers, the other Christians before the city authorities, and then they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Man, can you imagine the the pride you would be tempted to feel be like, hey, say that again. Say that again. That's exactly what I'm called to do. I am called to proclaim that there is a king and his name is Jesus. And you are accusing me of that? I'll take that label all day long. The problem is that is a label of treason and treason leads to death. So again, we have this accusation that is both false and true. This charge of treason, if, if, if Paul and Silas and the other Christians are teaching that Jesus is king, are they committing treason against Caesar? That's really the question here, and the answer is no. So in a sense, the accusation is false. The kingship of Jesus does not depose worldly kings now. Paul and Silas were not committing treason. They were not rebelling against Caesar by proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. They were fully able to submit to Caesar in tons of ways, and they were not trying to displace him and and replace him with Jesus. They they were fully able to submit to Caesar in all kinds of ways, and they did it all the time. Paul made a lot of use of his Roman citizenship, but their allegiance to Jesus wasn't always incompatible with their allegiance to Caesar. So when they taught that Jesus is king, they did not mean that Jesus was going to sit on a Roman throne or that he was going to take things over. So no, they didn't commit treason. However, the accusation is also true, and it shows us how how people get a little upset with Jesus. Jesus really is the king of all things. He really is the king of the universe. And Paul and Silas were really preaching that, and and Jason and the other Christians were really believing that. They were really spreading that news. The subtle difference between this accusation and reality is that Jesus is not another king. He is the one true king. He is the king of kings. And while the kingship of Jesus did not give Paul and the early church a free pass to rebel against worldly rulers, the kingship of Jesus did mean that their allegiances had to shift. And this is is what people don't like. This is what you and I are prone to not like. Jesus doesn't demand that we, we're only allegiant to him, that we can't be allegiant to anyone else, we can't be faithful and we can't honor anyone else. That's, that's not what he calls us to do. But he does call for our ultimate allegiance. So that if we're faced with a choice between disobeying the government or disobeying Jesus, we, we disobey the government. If we're forced with a choice between going against something that's happening in our own family because The alternative is to go against what Jesus wants and expects of us. We have to be on his side. We have to submit to him. We submit to Jesus first. That's what it means for Jesus to be king over our lives. Another king has come. and He supersedes all earthly authorities. Our allegiance must be to King Jesus first. And that means... That when allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to anyone or anything else in our lives, including our own jobs, the way that we provide for our families, when those are incompatible, we must always and forever submit to Jesus and his ways, even if it means rebelling, even if it means quitting, even if it means leaving, even if it means moving, even if it means changing everything about our lives, when it comes down to it, Jesus demands and deserves our ultimate allegiance. He is the king and we don't like it. And people in our lives don't like it. When you share the gospel with other people, don't don't try to try to, you know, sugarcoat it with them. No, when you come and you submit to Jesus, he has real authority over your life now. You you don't get to to dictate how your life goes apart from what he has to say and what he wants for your life. He's the king. Now, there are two responses here. There are two there are two ways to respond to Jesus and this is the last thing I want you to see. There are only two ways to respond to Jesus that make any sense. Um, to, to To just come to Jesus and be like, you know, great guy, but who cares? We don't really have that option. Because he's either the king of the universe with all authority, or he's not. He either really did usher in a new kingdom, and that one day in the future there's going to be a new world in which he reigns supreme over, and we live in and are a part of, or not. So really there are only two options here. Faith or rejection. Submission or rebellion. Allegiance or animosity. You saw some Jews, many Greeks, many leading women. They all came to faith in Jesus. As the gospel was shared, the diversity of that response. The gospel cuts across social and ethnic lines. And, and in this response there was a personal response and there was a corporate response we saw in, in Acts 17 that they were persuaded these, these Greeks these Jews, these leading women they heard the gospel and they were persuaded they had to make a personal choice when you come to faith in Jesus you make a personal choice and you receive a new faith but they also had a corporate response did you notice it? Where it says that those groups of people, they not only were persuaded, but they joined Paul and Silas. Their faith, even though it was individual, it had corporate aspects to it as well. They joined the community of faith. When you come to faith in Jesus, you don't just receive a new personal faith or a new personal way of living. You receive a new family. You're welcomed in. You're brought in, regardless of where you're from. Whether you were a Greek or a Jew, a man or a woman, you were brought in because of what Jesus has done. You're included. So that's how I would encourage you to respond to Jesus this week through faith, through submission, through allegiance. What area of your life do you need to submit to Jesus right now? There's a second way you can respond, and, and it's the way that the Jews and their mob responded it's the way of jealousy, it's the way of pride. It's the way of self-destruction, it's rebellion, it's rejection, it's animosity, and you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. We can't submit to Jesus and retain full autonomy and authority over our lives. There can only be one king. So how will we respond? I would invite us to respond by praising this king for who he is because if you notice the world is turned upside down not when we finally figure it all out but when we finally receive Jesus by faith and start telling other people about him proclaiming something that happened outside of us Jesus is the king let's declare that and praise that together this week